Good morning. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. We begin with night one of the Republican National Convention. President Trump and his Republican allies opened the convention with a fierce defense of the president's record. Despite the fact that the U.S. has the highest COVID-19 death toll by far of any nation in the world, last night's speakers praised the president's handling of the pandemic, and many made factually incorrect statements. At one point, they showed a video depicting Democrats as failing to take the pandemic seriously, while the president acted quickly and decisively. Republicans also defended their record on diversity. They rejected any assertion that President Trump and, in fact, Americans as a whole are racist. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who is Indian American, and Senator Tim Scott, the only black Republican senator in the U.S. Congress, both delivered well-crafted and hopeful messages. Our family went from cotton to Congress in one lifetime. And that's why I believe the next American century can be better than the last. But overall, the tone was dark. Republicans described an America taken over by leftist mobs. From speaker to speaker, we heard stark warnings that if Joe Biden is elected, there will be civil disorder. Here's the president's son, Don Jr. Anarchists have been flooding our streets and Democrat mayors are ordering the police to stand down. And again from campaign fundraiser Kimberly Guilfoyle. Rioters must not be allowed to destroy our cities. And again, directly from suburban voters like that St. Louis couple, they're the ones who pointed their guns at Black Lives Matter protesters and got national media attention back in June. No matter where you live, your family will not be safe in the radical Democrats' America. At the same time the convention was going on last night, demonstrators in Kenosha, Wisconsin, were protesting the police shooting of a black man who was shot multiple times in the back on Sunday. The protests started out peaceful but turned violent later in the night, with some people setting fires and smashing storefronts. The police fired tear gas back. And by this morning, the governor of Wisconsin, who's a Democrat, had called in the National Guard. It's these scenes that the president says would happen every day in Joe Biden's America and that this type of violence would carry into the suburbs. So that's where we'll dig deeper today and look at these claims that the suburbs are under attack. A few weeks back, President Trump wrote an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal along with Ben Carson, who's the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. In that op-ed, the men claim Democrats are pushing for more high-density, low-income housing in single-family areas. They effectively prevented a major transformation in American suburbs, and that a vote for Biden would be a vote to allow high-rise buildings to pop up next door to your suburban house. So let's talk about two things here. First, let's talk about that housing regulation. And second, we'll get into the idea of safety in the suburbs. Politico has an explainer on how President Trump actually changed his stance on this housing issue. A year ago, he supported policies that would allow for more affordable housing in the suburbs. In fact, Ben Carson made the case for why Americans need to get rid of their so-called not-in-my-backyard mentality. So why the pivot a year later? According to Politico, the president began to change his message after this summer's racial justice protests. 
Politico suggests Trump saw the unrest as an opportunity to win over suburban voters, people upset by the protests, vandalism, and attacks against police. Experts suggest this type of messaging can work, even among wealthier, better educated, even more progressive voters. In a Q&A with the director of Metropolitan Studies at New York University, his name is Thomas Sagru, he tells Politico that voters tend to be protective of their white picket fences and great public schools. Even white liberals in suburbs have historically resisted low-income housing and supported segregation policies that protect the culture and environment of their communities. But, Shemita, he also points out, this isn't leave it to beaver anymore. The (laughs) suburbs are much more diverse than they used to be. A majority of African Americans live outside of central cities and in suburban areas, which is also where a majority of new immigrants move when they first come to the U.S. And yet, even with those changing demographics, Trump's rhetoric is a clear dog whistle. And for people who are genuinely feeling afraid right now, they might be receptive to the message. You hear it every election. Your vote counts. Your vote can make a difference. And you might be skeptical. You might think, could my single vote really tip the scales? Well, consider this. In 2016, the margin of victory in several key battleground states was just a few thousand votes. In Wisconsin, President Trump won by fewer than 23,000 votes. That's less than 1% of all votes cast. So, yes, your vote could literally determine the outcome of the election this November. But to have any impact, of course, your vote needs to actually be counted. According to analysis by NPR and The Washington Post, in the 2020 primaries, more than half a million absentee ballots were rejected. And a quarter of them were in battleground states like Wisconsin. In fact, the number of rejected mail-in ballots in Wisconsin this year was greater than the number of votes that tipped the scale in Trump's favor in 2016. Or look at Michigan. The margin of victory there in 2016 was just 10,704 votes. In this year's primaries, 10,694 votes were disqualified. That's just a difference of 10 votes. Those numbers are eye-popping, but it's important to note Neither The Washington Post nor NPR are suggesting anything nefarious happened here. The most likely reason these mail-in ballots were rejected was because voters made errors, like signatures were missing or they arrived too late. Mm -hmm. First-time voters are more likely to make these kinds of errors. And because of the pandemic, we're seeing more people vote by mail for the first time. So part of the responsibility is on voters to know how to fill out their mail-in ballots correctly. We'll link to some helpful resources in our show notes about how to do exactly that. And the other share of the responsibility falls on states to execute the logistics. And if states need an example to follow, I kind of can't believe I'm saying this, Duarte, but election experts are suggesting that they look to Florida. Oh, Florida. ABC News reports in Florida, one million more people voted by mail this year compared to four years ago. And overall, this year's primary went fairly smoothly. By 10 p.m. on primary night, the state was able to call the race. The key to its success, the state allowed election officials to begin processing mail-in ballots weeks before Election Day. That move allowed them to announce the results far faster. As you wait for news about a possible COVID-19 vaccine, don't forget, in the U.S., the annual flu season is almost here. 
and health officials are worried. This is the most important flu season that we've faced in, I'd say, my lifetime. In that interview at the beginning of August, U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams urged us, get your flu vaccine. Vox explains why flu vaccinations are more important than ever this year. Yeah, for one, the flu always puts a strain on hospitals and doctors' offices. The CDC's data from last winter shows the flu was a factor in at least 18 million doctors' visits. It was the reason for 410,000 hospitalizations, and the flu killed 64,000 people. Another complicating factor is both the flu and COVID-19 respiratory infections. They have some overlapping symptoms. Mm -hmm. In both cases, very sick patients may require ventilators. So if you get sick, it's important to know which illness you have because they're both highly contagious. And, well, we still don't know what happens to people if you get COVID and the flu at the same time. Yeah, the CDC recommends almost everyone over the age of six months old should get a flu shot. And NPR offers some helpful tips on getting one this year in case you've been avoiding unnecessary trips to the doctor or really anywhere given the pandemic. Call your doctor's office and find out in advance if you can sign up for a flu shot and make an appointment if you can so you can avoid the waiting room. The same exact advice goes for pharmacies that carry flu shots. Try to bring the whole family when you go to get the flu vaccine together and look for outdoor and drive through clinics. You can find all these stories and more in our show notes page and in the Apple News app. And remember, Apple News is offering special coverage of the Republican National Convention. We'll have nightly live blogs and wrap-ups of speeches, plus reactions and key moments. Visit the Apple News app every evening to find that and more. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. 